Let's stand together uh, and we'll read from Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the example of Paul and uh, what it looks like to have a redeemed life. I pray, Lord, that... Uh, as we learn more about this man, that we just uh, understand exactly why you chose him for ministry, and uh, and just look for even like uh, uh, for new respect for him in terms of his credentials and his his passion and his zeal for for who you were. I just uh, just ask you that we uh, can learn from him and that we are encouraged through what you did in his life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's no doubt uh, that Jesus was the most influential person ever to live in terms of Christian uh, faith. But I think it would be fair to say and that uh, Paul would be considered the second most influential person to Christendom. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 13 were written by Paul. So half the New Testament written by Paul. If you include Hebrews, it's 14. There's debate on whether Paul was an author of Hebrews or not. So if, you're, if you come from the camp where you believe Paul did, then he wrote 14 books of the New Testament. When you consider there were 12 other apostles before Paul was called to ministry, that's a staggering amount of influence in terms of New Testament writings. 12 men are apostles, and yet, and yet we only have Paul writing half of the book of the New Testament. And as Christians, we love Paul. Uh, I mean, some of our favorite uh, conversations at, uh, over the coffee or Bible studies go back over, back and forth over Paul's theology, whether we understand him right or not. And as pastors who prepare sermons, uh, I don't know if there's a single week that goes by that he's not quoted. 
um, virtually, even when you read from Peter or read from John, uh, Paul still seems to get credit for things and cross-references and whatnot. But I don't want to use Acts chapter 9 as, as our observation uh, passage today. I actually want to talk about something very different. It's more of a topical study, uh, more of a topical message. And the question I would like to answer is, why did God choose him? Like, why Paul? There's, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people available that God could have appeared to in a vision and, and done that. Why Paul? Well, I want to look at the characteristics which I think God saw in him, that God said, this is a perfect man for what I want to accomplish in church planting and, and in ministry. And what I'm about to tell you, I have to give credit to my teacher at Regent College, uh, Rick Watts. Uh, he was the one who opened my eyes to some of these characteristics, and I've just taken his, his uh, main points and I've elaborated on them um, through my own study. So credit needs to be given where credit is due. But to understand Paul, you need to understand the context in the world he lived in. And that there are two major influences in his life, two worlds, distinct worlds. He had a very strong Gentile influence, and he had a very strong Jewish influence. Uh, that's, that's different than the apostles. The apostles grew up in, Jerusalem, in Galilee, Jerusalem, and those areas, and they were pure Jews, and they lived in, in the Jerusalem and, and those areas within Israel, and they, they had a very strong Jewish influence. Paul actually had both a Gentile and Jewish influence. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is that his birthplace. In Acts chapter 21, verse 39, uh, Paul grew up in Tarsus, in um, Cilicia. <laughs> Try saying that fast. Cilicia. Uh, that would be like modern-day Turkey, okay? Uh, it was the southeastern coast of modern-day Turkey. And I thought I'd just show you uh, this one on that. So if you look over here in the corner, you'll see Antioch and Tarsus is right close to it. And Syria is below Turkey. So Galatia, when you read Galatians, that's modern-day Turkey when you think about the area. So you can see Jerusalem is down here in the bottom right-hand corner. So Tarsus and Jerusalem are not too far apart. However, um, Israel, it, uh, Tarsus is outside of Israel in terms of geographical boundaries. Uh, we learned from Acts that, that this was a, called a, Paul called it a leading city in the empire. And it was a very urban uh, place. So here's the key with this, though, was that even though Paul himself was Jewish, he wasn't raised in Israel. He wasn't raised, he wasn't born in Israel. Um, he actually lived in a Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman world, that's his Gentile background. The second thing I want you to know then about Paul is outside of his birthplace is that he was a Hellenistic Jew from the diaspora. Okay? Big words. So we have to define what it means to be Hellenistic, and we have to define what it means to be from the diaspora. Does anybody know what the diaspora is? Isn't when they were all sent out, like the, like forced to flee or whatever? Yeah, the, so uh, I don't know if you heard Laurel, but she says, is it what, was it not the Jews, who, the Jews from outside of Israel then? Yeah, no. they forced it, yeah. Yeah, so not the Jews that were forced to flee from Israel and be sort of spread out to the Gentile nations. Um, the diaspora was uh, the Jews who lived outside of Israel, okay? And you see them all the time in Scripture in the book of John. Remember the book of John? Why did, why did, uh, where were the people coming from when they flocked to the Passover? And there'd be thousands upon thousands of people like, coming for the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
these guys and girls were coming from from the uh, from the outskirts of Israel into uh, Israel's camp or into Jerusalem for these feasts and festivals, and that's why the population it's kind of like a Calgary Stampede but on a much larger scale. Our population just multiplies in July with tourists. Well, Jews who were living in the, outside of Israel would come, and they would come to these feasts and festivals to celebrate uh, these 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 things in Jerusalem. But these were Jews who lived in the diaspora. And we see them in, in Acts and uh, different places like that. They were there for Pentecost. The, you remember you hear them saying, I can hear these Galileans speaking in our language. Right? There was, there was, uh, um, there was uh, well, Gentiles as well that would come in. So people could, could hear them. Or could, would, uh, the Jews would always identify with the Israelites and then come there for the feast and whatnot. Hellenism. What does it mean for him to be... Okay, so wait a minute. Diaspora. Let me go back. So Paul then was a Jew who lived outside of Israel. He was part of the diaspora. So what does it mean for him to be a Hellenistic Jew? Well, Hellenism was basically the spread of Greek language and culture as a result of Alexander the Great's conquest. Okay, and I want to show you a video. Um, this is a really good video. I, I found it on, on YouTube. Hopefully it'll work. Um, this explains what Hellenism is, and then I'll tie it back to why it's so important to understand Paul as a Hellenistic Jew, okay, and not an Israelite Jew. So let's see if this will work. And it's not going to work. And I don't know why, because it worked when I... It worked earlier when I tried to make it go. Oh, here we go. Perfect. The term Hellenistic literally means to imitate Greeks, and the Hellenistic period refers to a period of time dominated by a fusion of Greek language and customs with the culture of the Near East. The actual era of the Hellenistic societies began with the life and death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE and ended with Rome's conquest of Egypt in 30 BCE. Although some historians prefer to end the period when Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople in 330 CE. This process of spreading Greek culture is known as Hellenization. So, how did Alexander the Great start this process of cultural fusion? First, his army was an international force comprised of people from highly diversified backgrounds. While on military campaigns, Alexander encouraged his men to take wives from foreign lands and he himself married several women from the East. When he conquered the Persian Empire, he took up many of their customs. For instance, he wore the traditional clothing of a Persian king and used Persians as administrators. Rather than suppressing the cultures in the areas he conquered, Alexander adopted their customs for his own use and taught conquered peoples his own traditions as well. This sharing of Greek and native customs became a part of life for both the Greeks and non-Greeks alike in the areas Alexander conquered. In this way, he began an era of cultural synthesis that would continue long after his death. One of the most efficient ways to spread Greek culture turned out to be by moving parts of the Greek population to the new areas conquered by Alexander. As such, new military bases were built in many of the conquered areas, which were soon followed by cities formed around these bases. Basically, colonists would move in as they looked for new economic opportunities. Greek rulers after Alexander benefited from these colonies because they served as military recruitment stations. However, the administration of these colonies was far from fair to all Hellenistic people. 
While Greeks had started to adopt the practice of different cultures, they still believed that Greek society was superior to all others. With this in mind, the new Hellenistic cities were often initially culturally identical to Greek cities on the mainland. For instance, the government was still modeled after the Greek polis, or city-state. This meant that the councils and assemblies were still based on Greek ideals of citizenship and political participation. As such, the Greeks dominated politics in these cities. Native people were often prevented from holding any public offices or civil servant positions. This created resentment among the local populations that were being treated as second-class citizens. During this time, the Greeks still practiced their traditional polytheism. Okay. Gives you a, a basic, basic overview of what it was. <clears throat> so when I say that Paul was a Hellenistic Jew, he grew up in Tarsus, this Gentile land, and he was heavily influenced by what Alexander the Great's conquest had done through the, well, the world. He was, um, he was uh, accustomed to the Greek culture, accustomed to the Greek language, and, and all the religious beliefs behind it, and so on and so forth. Which leads me to the third thing I want to say about Paul. You see, as a result of his upbringing, he could then speak Greek fluently. He could speak Greek fluently. Um, in Acts chapter um, 9, which Laurel read from, you notice that uh, yeah, Jesus said this in verse 15, uh, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the sons of Israel. So his priority from God choosing him in ministry was for the Gentile people first and the, the Jewish people second. Peter was opposite. Peter was chosen to be a, a, an apostle to the Jewish people. And Peter from the, never left Jerusalem. Uh, he was, he's back after like Pentecost, he stayed there. So Peter just lived and stayed in, in, in Jerusalem, and he always sort of did ministry out of there. He might have traveled and whatnot, but his hub center was, it was at Jerusalem. That wasn't Paul. Paul traveled all over, the, all, all over the world, in the Mediterranean world. And you think about that, why would God do that? He could speak Greek fluently. So therefore, Paul could communicate with every place that he went to. He could go to Philippi, they speak Greek. He could go to... Uh, um, like, you know, Turkey, they could speak Greek, and so on. So Alexander the Great's conquest, spreading this Greek language and Greek culture, meant that Paul, because he grew up in a Gentile world, could they communicate with all peoples. If, uh, if you were an apostle that only speak Hebrew, you'd be limited in who you could do missionary work to. So Paul, so Paul was a great choice because, um, because of his ability to, to speak the language. Fourth, then, fourthly with Paul, he was familiar then with Greek customs, Greek myth, mystery religions, and Greek philosophical schools, right? And so, I'll give you an example. He actually quotes, Paul actually quotes um, two uh, philosophers that are Greek in, in the text in the New Testament. Uh, I don't know, you'll, when, I, when I show you these, you'll, you'll remember them. Uh, look at Titus 1.12. Oh, hold on a second. I gotta go... I gotta put this back on here. Titus uh, 1, 10 to 12. This is Paul speaking. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So he's speaking about false teachers here. Uh, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets, 
So a, a Greek philosopher has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Well, how does he know that? Well, he's from the Greek culture, and he's familiar with Greek customs and philosophical thoughts. So he can then say to us, in, in the midst of Gentile people, even your own people think this way, right? Your own philosophers. So he's appealing to their already knowledge of the philo philosophers that exist in their culture. Probably the most famous, oh, by the way, if you like to write notes, the guy that said this apparently was a guy named uh, Epimenides, uh, E-P-I-M-E-N-I-D-E-S. That was the name of the fellow that apparently said this quote, <laughs> according to commentaries. Uh, another philosopher was found in Acts 17.28 by the name of Aratus, A-R-A-T-U-S. And um, in Acts 17.26-28, this is how the conversation went. Um, Paul walks into the Greek uh, Areopagus and he notices that these, uh, uh, these uh, statues and idols are made out of stone to all the Greek gods. And he, needs, he sees a stone with no name on it that's blank because the Greeks recognize there's probably other gods that exist out there that they just don't know the names of, so they leave it blank. And so Paul takes the opportunity and thought, okay, I'm going to fill that stone um, with a name. <laughs> Although he teaches them that God isn't an idol, mind you, but, but the point, he says to an unknown God, this is what that stone says. So Paul uses this opportunity to then preach the gospel, and he says in Acts 17:26, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries on the lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not fear from, far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So again, Paul was able, was being familiar with Greek customs, Mr. religions, and Greek philosophical schools, was able to do ministry work really well. And there's something to be said for that. We don't have to be afraid as Christians of knowing other religions. We don't have to be afraid of knowing what other people's belief systems are. We can actually, in our evangelism, use those belief systems to our advantage in sharing the gospel. God's not embarrassed if you quote, quote uh, other people. If you have to quote, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Phil or, or uh, um, Deepak Chopra to prove a point, uh, he doesn't, he's not offended. We can use uh, people's, uh, in our culture, secular world's uh, gurus to do evangelism with, and he doesn't care. He's not threatened by it. Paul did it all the time. It was a way of relating to people to spread the gospel message. All right? Uh, so fifth, regarding Paul, as a result of his upbringing, so not only could he speak the Greek language, not only was he familiar with Greek religions and customs, he was also sensitive <laughs> to the issues involved in, in living as God's people in the pagan world. He was sensitive to the issues, what it would like to be a Christian in a pagan Gentile world. Examples are found hugely in the Corinthian and Roman church. Why does he talk about eating food to idols so well? How does he know that so much? Because in Tarsus, there had been eating food to idols. That wasn't happening in uh, Jerusalem. <laughs> that was happening in the Gentile world. So he knew how to help the Christians navigate through those issues. How about sexuality? Uh, he knew how to help them navigate through sexuality. Uh, I mean, the, the Greeks believed in a two-tiered two world. In other words, there's a spirit world where the gods live, and then there was earth. And that was very distinct. And the Greek mindset, there were the, 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 um, the gods of the heavens wanted nothing to do with our world or us as people. 
In fact, that's why they tried to appease the gods so much with all their sacrifices and rituals, and because they were trying to get them on their side. Um, and so they thought, well, because God, the gods don't care about the physical world and don't care about us as people, we have the right to do with our bodies whatever we want. And that's why all this teaching in Corinth, he's saying, don't, you're uniting yourself with prostitutes. Do you not know that your, your body is a temple of the Lord? The Corinthians didn't know that. <laughs> you might think, well, we should, I know that, but they didn't know that. The Corinthian Greek mindset was, uh, my body means nothing to a god, and so therefore I'm free to do whatever I want. So they're going off to the temples and sleeping with the prostitutes, and Paul's like, what are you doing? God actually cares about your body. That's new thinking to them. They don't know that. Um, and also, um, yeah, this, this idea of being, this fidelity in marriage and things like that, and, and he's teaching them how to relate in marriage. They don't know these things. Uh, you, you're, you can do whatever you want as a, as a Gentile, as a Greek, a Greek mindset, because gods don't care about your body and don't care about this world. So you see the Christian message is so different. God cares about your body. He cares how you live. And he loves you so much, God actually came to this world to know you. I mean, the Christian message was, was completely contradictory to the Greek philosophical schools that these guys were grew up in. Sixth, then, with Paul, is the use of the Septuagint Bible. If you ever see it, in, you've ever seen the word, if you ever see LXX, that's a reference to the Septuagint Bible. Does anybody know what the Septuagint Bible is? Here's a question. Do you know what language the um, scriptures in the Old Testament were written in originally? Okay. Hebrew, correct. Okay, if you're going to go to Gentile nations, now remember that only the Old Testament exists, right? When Paul's going doing missionary work and Paul and Peter, there is no New Testament. Okay? So how are you going to go into a Gentile world and preach the Hebrew Scriptures? You can't give anybody anything. Like, there's nothing to, to relate to. The Septuagint Bible was a translation from Hebrew to Greek. And in the 3rd century BC in Egypt, in a place called Alexandria, there was dedicated time to getting the Bible translated from Hebrew into Greek. Paul, when he traveled, quoted the Septuagint Bible. When he was in Jerusalem, no doubt he probably used the Hebrew scriptures, but when he traveled, if he's going to relate to Greek people, he needs to use Greek language. So he, had a, he, had the, he, had, he, he used the, the, um, the Septuagint Bible as a translation. I don't want it, so not all of Hellenism was bad, therefore. This is, like, um, this is how cool God is. I mean, he used like, Alexander the Great's conquest to get the whole world speaking Greek. So imagine everyone has distinct languages. Alexander comes in and makes one language universal. And now it comes to spreading of the gospel. Paul only has to know one language to relate to the whole of the Mediterranean world. Isn't that beautiful? If you go to, if you go to Italy and then just go next door to another uh, country, you have to know two different languages. In that world, you knew, if you knew Greek, you could, you could travel the whole Mediterranean world. So Paul's able to take the Septuagint translation and go and speak the Greek, um, or give the Greeks the Greek Bible, or, or, or Greek scriptures, and they could relate to it. So not all of Hellenism, Hellenism was bad. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 1.19, Paul quotes this. He says, uh, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will nullify the intelligence of the intelligent. 
Let me read it again so the words are in your head. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will nullify the intelligence of the intelligent. Let's look at the Hebrew, original Hebrew text. It's called the Masoretic text, just for fun words. You have to know what Hellenism is. You have to know what diaspora is. This is part of your Christian education. <laughs> um, Hebrew translation says this, Therefore watch me again, do an incredibly wonderful thing with this people. The wisdom of their wise will perish, and the discernment of their discerners will hide itself. So when you read those, there's certain words that are similar, but it's not totally the succinct. The Hebrew scriptures and, the, and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians are slightly different. Okay? Now look at the Septuagint version of, the, of Isaiah 29.14. Therefore, pay attention. I will again change his people, and I will change them. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will hide the intelligence of the intelligent. Cool, eh? So he's actually quoting in Corinth, which makes sense, a Greek culture, the Septuagint Bible. That's his primary source in those ministries. Uh, lastly, Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a Roman citizen. That was a major, major thing. <coughs> One could become a citizen of Rome either by birth, right, passed down through genealogy, or by buying the privilege. You, there's ways that you could buy Roman citizenship at a high price. In the case of Paul, we know in Acts, he tells us that he's born a citizen. We're going to come to that passage in a second. It's actually Acts 22. He was born a citizen. So because his parents were Jews, they likely bought their citizenship. Or another option potentially was uh, the Caesars would often extend to foreigners um, citizenship if they joined up for military service. So, if you, so then you would get it for free. But you'd have to sign up and fight for Rome's causes. So you could get it through that or through paying for it. So because his parents were Jews, they likely came into citizenship through both those ways. But once Paul was born, he inherited that right. And Roman citizenship came with huge privileges. You had the right to vote in assemblies. You had the right to own land. You were exempt from many taxes imposed, uh, that, uh, that, other, uh, that were imposed on other people. But most importantly for Paul, you had the right to a fair trial, right to a fair trial when you're accused of wrongdoing, and the right to appeal to Caesar. And because Paul was always under persecution, this Roman citizenship often got him out of dangerous situations that other people couldn't have got out of. I'll give you two examples, and those of you in the Philippians study with, with me know this inside and out. Remember in Acts 16, um, Paul goes into Philippi, he's accused of, uh, he, um, he's preaching the gospel, and then like, the, 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 um, the fortune tellers are losing their profits. And so what do they do? They make a false accusation against him. The Philippian Romans take him and, and they uh, beat him and throw him in jail. They find out later that he's a Roman citizen. And they beg him, please leave Philippi without squealing on us. Get out of here, get out of here. And Paul says, no way. You want to beat a Roman citizen and try to get away with this? I'm not going, I'm not going quietly. You're going to know about that. They're going to know about this. Why would a Roman soldier be so afraid? Because as a Roman citizen, you are not to t treat your people that way. You're not to beat them without a fair... You, you can't punish them without a fair trial and the right to be heard before a, a proper court. And so Paul says, you want to play that trump card on me and try to beat me unfairly? 
I'm going to tell you I'm a Roman citizen, and they're freaking out. I mean, the worst case scenario, I think a, a Caesar or the, the commanding officer or whatever could have that person executed. And that's why the soldiers are so, so afraid. But how about Acts 22 and 20, 25, 29? Paul's arrested by the Jerusalem mob, but held in Roman custody. So the Jews arrest him, but he's held in Roman custody because in Jerusalem, Rome's in power. Look at this in Acts 22. Um, as they stretched him out to flog him, speaking about Paul, this is the Romans, they've got him out to flog him. Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't, been give, hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He says, yes, I am. He answered, the, the commander then said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he had realized that he put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So again, this Roman citizenship gave him privileges that other people, if God had chosen another man for ministry from another nation who didn't have that citizenship, in terms of persecution, they, he could have been executed prematurely. He could have been uh, beaten prematurely. He could, or that wouldn't have mattered. He was beaten anyway, but mostly by his own people, by the Jews. The Jews, the Jews would. But you can see, you see that this Roman citizenship gave Paul a trump card whenever he got into danger. So it's very, very interesting. So that's, that's, the, that's the key with Paul. So the, the seven things were, first of all, the Gentile influence, talk about his birthplace, recognizing he's a Hellenistic Jew from the diaspora, understanding he could speak Greek fluently, he was familiar with Greek customs and religions, uh, he was sensitive to the issues involved in, in the Gentile world as a Christian. His use of the Septuagint Bible and his Roman citizenship were all things that none of the Jewish people, none of the Jewish apostles had. So you can see how God could use this man and choose this man for, for ministry because he, had, he was just well equipped from being from that world. So he could relate to the people of those worlds. And let's finish now with the Jewish influence now. This isn't quite as long as the list. But at some point, we know that um, Paul had moved to Jerusalem for his theological training. So the first point is that basically that Paul received the highest level of education possible in the Jewish uh, theology. He was trained in Jerusalem under a guy named Gamaliel. In Acts 22, verse 3, we can see this fellow. He was trained under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a Jewish rabbi and a leader in the Sanhedrin in the first century, and he received a couple mentions in the New Testament. One particular verse you might want to write down is Acts 5.34. It says there that Gamaliel was honored by all the people. Now you and I, it's nice when one or two people respect us, or maybe a handful of people give us honor or respect. It says that within Jerusalem, Gamaliel was honored by all people. Now that says a lot because He's within the Sanhedrin. These are Pharisees that are spiritual leaders. And uh, you would think that within spiritual leaders, jealousy and hypocrisy and, and uh, insecurities wouldn't exist. When you're at the high level of religious um, authority, you still can get intimidated by people that know more than you or can, has more wisdom than you. But um, here's Gamaliel being honored by all the people, including the religious leaders. And we see a cool example of him swaying the entire Sanhedrin to his side and dealing with the apostles. The apostles are spreading the gospel. The church is growing like crazy. 
the, the, the Sanhedrin call the apostles in and say, stop teaching in the name of Jesus, and they throw them in jail. And they say, no, we're not going to stop in the name of Jesus. We're going to keep going. So they get freed from prison. They go right, uh, miraculously, supernaturally, they go back into the temple courts and start preaching the name of Jesus. The high priest brings them in and says, what are you doing? We've told you to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And he says, we, we're not going to stop. And so they go, the Sanhedrin is so irate, it said they want to kill them. So they want to kill the apostles. And what does Gamaliel do? He stands up and he sways the entire Sanhedrin not to kill them. And he gives a substantiation, why not? That's in Acts chapter 5. Um, but here's the thing. He must have been honored and respected that the entire Sanhedrin who want to execute the apostles turn around and change their mind because of one man's counsel. I mean, that shows a lot of sway and power. Well, Paul was trained by him exclusively. Secondly, Paul's theology was thoroughly Jewish. So he lived in a Gentile culture. He quoted philosophers and so on and so forth, but his theology was 100% Jewish. And it was under Gamaliel's mentorship that Paul developed an expert knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, it's evident, guys. You, you know that. I mean, when we read the New Testament, he knew them inside and out. I mean, Stu and I have talked about this. You know when you read, like, say, Psalm 14, or you read something, and then you see Paul quoting it in Romans, or, or you know, and you read that and go, I would have never assumed that Psalm 14 would fit into that context in Romans, like, that way, Right? Like when you read, when you read how the, the apostles, especially Paul, used the Old Testament scriptures, you would never draw the parallels out and stick them into theological applications in the New Testament. And then you have to go back and go, wow, I didn't realize you could use Psalm or Isaiah in this way. And, and you see it all the time. Paul knew every scripture and how it fit into the New Testament context. I mean, we don't know that. I mean, the guy was an absolute genius. <laughs> Now, what's really cool, though, despite his wisdom in the Old Testament scriptures, after he became saved, he still required three years more training because Jesus took him into the Arabian desert and trained him for three years. So even though he knew the scriptures, he didn't know how they applied all to, new, to, to this new Christianity that, that Christ had brought in. And so he had to still continue his training. So he knew the Old Testament like, 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 like nobody else. And then he had Jesus teach him directly. So the guy was a monster in terms of the, the, theological um, application. So because of Paul's educational and professional credentials, he, and because he held a position as a rabbi, he was allowed to preach in any synagogue he wanted whenever he traveled. Remember, if you look at all the, all the places that he goes into these foreign uh, cities where there's a synagogue, the first thing he does is go to the synagogue. It doesn't last long in there. He usually gets thrown out the front window. But he, when he arrives in a new city, synagogue. New city, synagogue. Philippi, there isn't a synagogue we, we can see, so we don't see him doing that. But, um, but he goes right to the Jews first, gives them a chance, and when they reject him, he goes to the Gentile people and spends the rest of his ministry there. Well, how can a guy who's a foreigner have the right to all of a sudden show up and go into your synagogue? Like how, you know, if a guy walked into the door with a white collar on, uh, we're not going to let him preach in here just because he got a white collar. You know, there has to be credentials and, and we have to know that he's um, uh, got the, the goods to bring the, the, the truth. Paul, with his credentials and his, his resume and his, uh, and his uh, being a rabbi and the way he knew scriptures, had the right to speak in the synagogues whenever he showed up into town. Thirdly, for Paul, the Jewish influence, even though he was raised in a Gentile culture, he identified with the Jewish people. 
identified with the Jewish people. Philippians 3, 3 to 6, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and I observe the law blamelessly. And he says in Galatians 1, 14, not only the law of Moses, but the oral traditions held by the, by the, by the founding fathers, or the, uh, the ancestral fathers. So, you know, when Jesus argues with the Pharisees all the time about following the traditions of men and not just the Mosaic law, Paul says, I was so blameless in my observance of the law that not only did I, but I, am I faultless in the Mosaic law, I was faultless in the ancestors as well. So he followed every law. And he even, he, this is not a conceited statement, this is a true statement. He says, I even excelled beyond my contemporaries. So if you're going to go to all the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, and say, who's the best in this group of following the Moses law and the ancestral laws, everyone would say, oh, Paul. Everyone knows that he's the jack daddy of obedience to both laws. He was, and when he says blameless, he's, he means it. He means it. Fourth, um, and finally, Paul's personality was uh, one of passion and ze- zealousness. And we'll talk about why God would appreciate that. <laughs> Again, this is evidence in his fanatical commitment to the traditions of the fathers. But it's also evidence in his persecution of the church. I mean, this guy was completely passionate for what he believed to be true. I mean, the reason Stephen got stoned was because Paul was the one who, like, who was an authority over that. He was throwing families into jail because they're preaching absolute heresy. Like, if, if we hear people, like, preaching heresy, we're like, well, that's too bad for them, whatever. If you were Paul, you'd want to kill them. I mean, that's a passionate, zealous person. He's an Isis. He's like an Isis leader in terms of his passion and zealousness for the, what he believes to be true. So here's the thing, when he becomes a Christian and Jesus transforms his life, that same kind of zealousness and passionness gets, gets shifted over to Christianity. So Jesus is looking going, I'm looking for people who are sold out for their religious <coughs> beliefs and will fight tooth and nail to the death for their belief system. If I appear to him and he receives me, I've got a guy that's going to be committed to my cause 100%. And so he, he, he appears to him, Paul is broken, and he now is zealous to the point that he gets beaten, shipwrecked, starved out. He doesn't care. He's going to keep preaching truth. And Paul had a great ability to gain people's loyalty. Uh, we see that throughout the scriptures. And he had a great ability to organize them into effective mission work. I mean, he church planted all, of, all these places, and they continued to thrive after he left. He knew how to produce healthy functioning church plants. Um, and he was amazing at it. So he had ability to gain people's trust, develop their loyalty, and then organize them. And this is still, still trade true to this day. I mean, we at Genesis House virtually take all of our cues on how to run this church based on Paul. I mean, Jesus Christ, of course, too, through the Gospels, but our church, our church here is run virtually the way that Paul, we try to emulate him as much as we can. So we, we here are loyal to Paul. <laughs> he can organize even us, and uh, he's gained our loyalty at Genesis House. So I want to finish with my final thought on Paul. Here's what's cool about Paul. When he was heading on the road to Damascus to uh, persecute the church, he fully believed he was honoring God in his actions. He fully believed what he was doing was right I was following the law blamelessly. You are not here to stone people for claiming that anyone's God but Yahweh. And these Christians are saying that Jesus Christ is God. 
and their, their allegiances to him. So he is, he believes that he's on his way to Damascus, that he's doing the right thing that God is proud of. Likely, I can't prove this, but this is an interesting thought. Um, you can, again, you can fight me on it if you like. But likely when God appeared to him on the road, because you notice he says there, um, who are you, Lord? Um, when God appeared to him, he likely thought maybe that God was going to pat him on the back. Give him a vision, say, Paul, proud of you, buddy. Keep going. Here's what you're going to do when you get to Damascus. He likely thought his encounter was going to be one of uh, affirmation. And then when he says, I am Jesus, you're persecuting, the guy would have been absolutely shocked. Absolutely shocked when he realized that his, that his zealousness for God had only made him an enemy of God. He would have been shocked to think that following the law blamelessly had only made him an enemy of God. He would have been astounded. And that following the law perfectly gave him no value in gaining a relationship with, with the Lord. That's interesting to think about because when you see his actions in verse 9 that Laurel read. Um, or where is it now? Sorry, I can't find it. It's, it's in uh, somewhere in here, but it says that he was praying and fasting. Well, what do prayer and fasting have to do with anything? Well, prayer and fasting are the two things that you do when you have nothing to bring to the table. <laughs> right? When you got nothing to offer, all you can do is pray and fast. you got nothing to offer. And, and here's Paul realizing that the law has not given him a relationship with God, only made him an enemy of God. And uh, it would have been shocking to him when he found out that the very person uh, that was the Lord was Jesus Christ. I don't really have uh, lessons for you today, just because each, each point was a lesson in itself. But I do, one, I do have one thing to say. You might be thinking, well, if, if Paul is like this, like, what do I possibly have to offer God? I mean, I don't know the Septuagint Bible. I can't speak different languages. I, I don't have this amazing training. The cool thing is, is that um, we have, like when Christians are, when we become Christians, we are called chosen people. We are called chosen people, just like Paul was. You, you have a background that's unique. I have a background that's unique. We have what I call very Gentile or pagan influences in our life prior to conversion. And I would say that although we may not be used to the same degree as Paul, we still can be used and every one of your, your backgrounds is important to God. You are unique in that way. You have different credentials that others don't within this church. And so I would just um, urge you to say that if you take one thing from Paul is that God can still use you to some degree like you did Paul. And that you do have a unique background and a unique testimony that only you can bring to the table within this church. And so... Um, Whatever that may be, God will use you in the circles and circumstances that you face yourself in. And uh, whatever your influences are and how deep they are, they can be used by the Lord just like they were for Paul. So just think about that because some of you in here might feel, well, what value am I to the kingdom or what can I bring to the table? And the answer is a lot because you have certain influences and circles of, in your own lives that maybe only you can reach because of the unique relationships that you have. And just like Paul had to be used by God in the Gentile world, because he came from that background, and he couldn't use Peter to the same degree, you have backgrounds too that you'd be more effective than someone else within this church.
So I just encourage you to uh, to uh, take that to the, the bank <laughs> and also just continue growing your faith so that the Lord can continue to use you.